Welcome to Wisdom, Love, and Beauty, a podcast for the soul and the home of dangerous wisdom. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor. And in this contemplation, we'll take a little break from our inquiry into magic. Or we might say that since love-wisdom goes intimately together with magic as we have considered it, we'll look at magic from a very different angle. So it'll feel like taking a break. And over the course of three or four contemplations, we'll look into the unconscious and the shadow. We can't really overstate the importance of this topic for all of us. And because of the significance of the unconscious and the shadow, they have come up many times in our contemplations, including in our contemplation of magic. For instance, if I recall correctly, it came up in our inquiry into Yeats's first principle of magic. Magic has gotten pushed into the shadow. And various ideas about magic emerge under the influence of the unconscious. And that means even people who have tried to take magic out of the shadow or out of the unconscious, and who say they believe in it, nevertheless relate to it on the basis of unconscious influences. And we have to do some work there to arrive at a more conscious and conscientious sense of magic. That's part of why this goes in the flow, why we're interrupting, seemingly interrupting the flow of magic, but really going with the flow of magic by taking this little break and looking into the unconscious and the shadow, because magic evokes fear. And it evokes the ego's unconscious defenses. And this applies to anything at all, even if we think we like something, perhaps magic or science or anything else. If a threat appears, then the ego has ways to keep us from facing up to reality. For instance, in science, the threat could appear as anomalous data. And the ego promptly writes it off as noise, as coincidence, or something like that. It's not actually anomalous data that threatens the paradigm, that threatens the research I'm doing, that threatens whatever it might be, my metaphysical assumptions about the world. No, it's just noise, it's coincidence, it's bad science, pseudoscience, whatever it might be. Now, we will look more directly at the fear we may have about magic proper. But first, it's really useful from a philosophical standpoint to look at the unconscious and the shadow in a more general way. And there has been increasing discussion of this in the broader culture. We're just going to look at it from a philosophical, spiritual perspective. The unconscious and the shadow affects all of us. And yet the dominant culture as a whole, and we as individuals affected by or infected by that culture in general, need to do more to come to terms with our own psyche. The discovery of the sheer vastness of the psyche demands a shift in everything from ethics and ecology to politics and art. The demands of this shift appear in our spiritual practice, often in pretty uncomfortable ways. 
and I see it with my clients all the time. It seems essential now more than ever, maybe, to emphasize that Sophia waits for us in the shadows. And if we don't seek her there, then she will leap out of the shadows when we least expect it, and perhaps least appreciate it, because it could cause us a great deal of needless suffering if she has to jump out of the shadows rather than if we were to compassionately and courageously seek her there. But we actively resist a full acknowledgement of the unconscious. As I said in my practice as a philosopher, I see this consistently. People say the very same things to me, especially in relation to any question or suggestion that might threaten their identity. And they don't know they sound like everyone else. It's very much like the students I had in university. Just like the students, the clients say things that they experience as unique, as their own thoughts and beliefs and so on. They don't experience these things as part of the culture or part of the structure of the ego. And they don't experience it as driven by anything in the unconscious. That's the nature of the unconscious. If there's an unconscious influence, we're having a conscious experience that we attribute to something, and we're getting it wrong, because we don't sense the unconscious influence. We just can't overstate the point here that unconscious dynamics are not conscious. And that seems obvious to say, in terms of the definition of the words, unconscious means not conscious, but in practice, it's very difficult to begin to fully admit this. These unconscious dynamics might become conscious, but at any given moment, unconscious dynamics may drive our behavior. And that means that in those moments, we don't have conscious awareness of how we're being manipulated by our own psyche. And our conscious mind may have at the ready, immediately ready to hand, stories, rationalizations, reasons, of course, we don't call them rationalizations, we have the reasons, the stories that explain what we're doing and why we're doing it. And we then claim to know what we're up to. We need to consider all this in a very caring and compassionate way, lovingly, gracefully, wisely, compassion for ourselves and others. Maybe we need to have some fierce compassion at times too, but we we need care. We're human beings. We have an unconscious. It's okay. And it's a little scary to face up to. That's okay too. We have an unconscious, and yet we often behave as if we don't. Or as if, well, maybe we have an unconscious, but in this moment, in this decision, in this thing that I'm doing, it can't possibly influence me in any way that really matters. That's what we often want to say. Part of the reason we need community 
has to do with communities' capacity to see our shadows and our unconscious at work. To at least sense the possibility that something unconscious might have an influence on us. Jesus said, Where any two of you gather, there also am I. The gathering. That's part of the meaning of philosophical dialogue. Etymologically, dialogue indicates the way of meaning and the path of gathering. It's that gathering where we have a larger ecology to help bring to light unconscious dynamics and also to make insights possible that wouldn't otherwise be possible. The divine abides there because the unconscious can be made conscious in part. Now many sages, in fact, agree with the spirit of what Jesus said there. In Buddhist philosophy, all the serious practitioners of that philosophy actively take refuge in the community, which they refer to as the Sangha. And the Sangha itself, as the community, is totally at one with the teachings of the philosophy and with the example of the fruition of those teachings embodied by the Buddha himself. So where any two gather, there also is the Buddha. And maybe Jesus, Confucius, Muhammad, the peacemaker, Gaia, Aluna, Pachamama, Sophia... When I gather with my clients, we gather in the spirit of sacredness with an openness not only to the presence of the mystery itself, by whatever names we call it, but also with an openness to the presence of the earth and her countless beings. If we don't let the wolves and the horses and the forests and the oceans speak, we have condemned ourselves to ignorance. And those beings usually remain in our unconscious, almost completely so. Clients at times have important breakthroughs when they allow themselves to hear the earth or hear a nearby river or hear an element such as wind or water. Those voices need to come into consciousness by means of the unconscious. That's where they are at now. The voice of the river nearest you, is it in your consciousness? At this moment, before I mentioned it, no. But even the mention of the river might not make its voice conscious. It might even seem like a nonsensical suggestion. In general, unconscious habits and patterns of thought need to become conscious. Let's just at least say that much. In countless ways, the unconscious plays a role in our lives that we don't sense. So it's there all the time, and yet we don't sense it, we haven't fully acknowledged it. So when I'm sitting with clients, especially in the early stages, I watch them get very reactive and defensive at things that begin to touch on the presence of the unconscious. And oddly, they say essentially the same things that everyone else says, which they don't realize they're they're doing. They think they're saying something unique to their experience. And it all comes down to an assertion that whatever we were just talking about, they have that under control. 
because that's my job philosophically to look for the place where there might be a sensitive spot that would evoke just that kind of reaction because until we're ready to look at that thing defensiveness can be the first response so sometimes I'll just say when we get to that point okay maybe I've misunderstood something here are are you enlightened are you a saint or a sage or a Buddha or something like that and they say well no of course not Nevertheless, there they sit. They they tell me about their powerful life experience or their business success or years of therapy that they went through or some wild spiritual experiences or whatever it might be. And apparently that should convince both of us that they have this something, whatever it is, under control. And they know what they're doing with their life in this or that area, whatever it might be. And I look at the suffering in their body And I consider these reactive rationalizations and sometimes I just say to them, okay, are you telling me you have no unconscious? Really think about that because where we find ourselves here, you seem to be saying you have no unconscious and that you really are totally enlightened. So is that it or not? And again, they insist, well, no, no, I'm not enlightened. Of course I have an unconscious. But this admission has no vitality as far as confronting something potentially crucial for their spiritual development at that moment, whatever the place is in their life that we might be looking at. And we should emphasize here that we're talking about something common. This is not rare or exceptional. So if I have any clients listening, then we may have had this kind of interaction and you may feel angry or embarrassed or annoyed or any number of things and you might think that this is about you this discussion it's not it's that's a normal reaction it's not about you it's not personal it's just common and part of the reason people come to me they eventually realize has to do with the need for someone else to point out unconscious dynamics at work and to bear witness to their life in a compassionate caring way that remains sensitive to the possibility of unconscious dynamics can't operate on the basis of conscious purposes or conscious ideas we have to deal with larger ecologies of mind some of which qualify as unknown unconscious Our spiritual practice has the capacity to bring unconscious material to light, but the ego can also orchestrate our practice in such a way as to keep us stuck and limited. And this in itself is an unconscious process. And what we're saying, in other words, is that unless we are enlightened, we really think that we're a saint or a Buddha or something, the second coming, Unless we're enlightened, fully awake, unconscious dynamics affect our lives in negative ways. And unconscious dynamics keep us locked in suffering. Suffering or samsara or sin, these terms indicate a way of living in which we ourselves, as well as others affected by our lives, we and they remain victims of our unconscious. 
I mean, think about it. If your problem in your life, whatever it is, if you, if you just say, well, yes, I admit I'm not awake, I'm not enlightened, okay. If that were a conscious problem, if you could see it fully, consciously, it would no longer be a problem. Some unconscious dynamic keeps it going. So if someone comes to me and they admit that they're not enlightened, we face the uncomfortable task of accepting and turning toward the unconscious because unconscious dynamics go together with our suffering. Now, there's a philosophical figure, in fact, there's quite a touchstone here in this area. It's a figure named Vimalakirti. Vimalakirti has a kind of mythical stature in the history of wisdom traditions around the world. And there's a little spiritual discourse about him. Very profound, wonderful thing to study carefully. And this fellow, Vimalakirti, he had accomplished tremendous spiritual realization, such that he had conquered all his demons, he had attained fearlessness, and he also had the power to perform magic, incidentally. Now, he was extremely liberated, let's just say that, not quite the pinnacle of liberation, not totally, fully, completely a, a Buddha or saint or second coming kind of level person in the fullest realization, but really close. In order to help people, especially to help some of Buddha's most advanced practitioners, Vimalakirti manifested himself as sick. This is an important moment of love wisdom. It just might sound simple. Okay, so this guy pretends to be sick. No, he really manifests an illness, and he's there on his sickbed. It's one of the finest cases of spiritual common law. And it would be so helpful to reflect on it deeply. I've been meaning to offer a contemplation specifically on Vimalakirti. And we'll take that up in a future contemplation, maybe even an addendum to this one. It might be useful to just tag it on here as a separate contemplation. But for now, let's just try to stay on one specific aspect of this. And let's say Vimalakirti was he practiced very, very deeply, attained profound realization of wisdom, love, and beauty, and on this basis, he manifests an illness in order to help people. So hearing that he has fallen ill, many people come to pay their respects and to inquire into his health, and he gives them teachings. And in his first teaching, in this state, he tells people gathered there that the body is like a magical illusion. It's a lesson on magic, in a way. And he also tells them that the body of an enlightened being is actually born of wisdom and insight. You know, you're looking at this body of, say, some enlightened person, like the Buddha, and you think, oh, it was born like my body was born. And he says, no, their body was born of wisdom and insight was born of ethics and meditation. It was born of love and compassion. It was born of joy and equanimity. So he's saying we don't really understand where our body comes from or what our body is. So it's this magical illusion that has a source. What kind of incantation conjured your body, he's asking us. After giving some basic teachings on the body, Vimalakirti had the following thought, which he knew the Buddha would hear. He knew the Buddha would hear this thought that he had. 
He thought to himself, here I am, sick and I'm lying in bed and the Buddha hasn't sent even one person to come and check on me and inquire after my health. And so Buddha heard his thoughts. See, this? these are magical beings. And at the, the time that he heard these thoughts, he was sitting with his chief disciples. Now, these people were kind of like saints. That's how they were, they were revered, like as if, you know, Buddha was akin to Jesus, although he wasn't a religious figure. But he was like akin to Jesus, and these were like the apostles, and they were supposed to be all very realized, even though, of course, we remember that in the Bible, Jesus is chastising the apostles all the time. But these people were revered, highly realized beings, so that if we met them, we might think that they were profoundly enlightened, in fact, and people did relate to them like they were very, very realized. So we can, as an analogy, imagine them as if they're in the dominant culture and we see these people who present themselves as spiritual teachers or gurus or, you know, kind of higher level, like I really know what life is about sort of figures. Or we could think of them like St. Augustine or St. Thomas or one of the apostles, something like that, just trying to give some context here. Because Buddhism is a philosophy, but then so what would it mean for these beings to be sort of seen as holy or sagely? And Buddha first asked one of his very top students named Shariputra, and he says, Shariputra, will you go and check on Vimalakirti for me? I want to know how he's doing. And Shariputra says, well, you know, I'd rather not do that, Buddha. And Buddha says, what what do you mean you'd rather not do that? What's the problem? And Shariputra says, well, one day I was meditating, and Vimalakirti came along, and he told me I wasn't doing it right. And he explained it to me, and he made these criticisms, and I had no idea how to respond. But after he explained it to me, a bunch of people standing around had a huge spiritual realization, and I was left really embarrassed. So this would be like coming to a saint and telling them, you're not praying the right way, and then explaining to them in such a way that a bunch of souls were saved and heathens were converted and demons were cast out and it was like a miracle was performed and the saint was left there with no understanding of why, what they were doing wrong or how to respond. And they just were really humiliated. So Buddha goes to, to the next person and the next and all the, his most accomplished disciples, students, and he asks each one of them, will you go visit Vimalakirti? And each one tells a similar story. Well, the one was teaching, another one was begging for food, another one was doing this. Or that. And Vimalakirti in each case tells them, well, you're doing it wrong. And in the process, they become totally dumbfounded. And meanwhile, everyone within earshot becomes more spiritually awakened. That's an interesting contrast, too, that they, that they themselves, nothing happened to them. They just were confused. And other people were awakened. So Vimalakirti has, by this point, what, what, are we, what are we getting at? See what is illustrated here without the language of Western psychology to talk about unconscious dynamics the way we do. There is a way to talk about them, and it's discussed. The whole structure of the psyche is very carefully analyzed in Buddhist philosophy. Buddha was a supreme psychologist, incredible. And the Buddhist philosophers are still teaching things to the Western psychologists now. They put these Buddhist practitioners in brain scanners and they're astonished at what they can do with their mind, with their brain. So Vimla Kirti has 
realized that these people are avoiding him, you see. He's sensed problems in their practice. He went and provoked those little delicate places where there was an unconscious dynamic, you see. These people didn't know that they were blocked, and other people looking at them didn't know they were blocked. But Vimla Kirti could sense the unconscious dynamics at work, and when he provoked them, he not only revealed that there was a, 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 a lacuna in their insight, there was a, a gap, an ignorance, that they couldn't respond to him. They couldn't say, oh, no, I'm not doing it wrong. Here, I'll, let me explain. No, he found that they were stuck, and then, aha, they avoided him. They didn't go and say, okay, well, you're going to have to teach me now. I'm totally confused, and everybody else just had a big enlightenment around you. How come I didn't? That wasn't their response. They didn't get down on their knees and say, okay, I've been humiliated. Please teach me. No, now they just start avoiding him. So he can't give them more lessons, and the only way to get them in the room is he's got to get Buddha on their case. And he knows that's what's going to happen. So we see a direct recognition that a person can think of themselves as wise, compassionate, spiritually evolved, and others can see them that way too. And nevertheless, they have unconscious blocks to further spiritual insight. So these supposedly sagely beings, and think, we're just ordinary people. These were people who were direct students of a very enlightened guy. And they were seemed to have a lot of realization, but they had come to a, a place where they weren't seeing it, and someone else had to point out their unconscious blocks. And when that happened, first thing they did was go reactive. And they wanted to avoid the situation. Now, all of us face these same dynamics. Most of us haven't arrived at the level of the best of Buddha students, and yet we don't necessarily say, oh, well, goodness, something that I don't see that's unconscious, and lo and behold, my response is to avoid it. Now, when we think about Vimalakirti and we think about how embarrassed these sagely people felt, it gives added context to the way Freud framed his view of the unconscious, how he framed his supposed discovery of the unconscious as a tremendous blow to the ego. Freud spoke of three great blows to the Western ego. The first, the discovery made by Copernicus that the earth is not the center of the universe. The second, the discovery made by Darwin that we're not even the center of life on this planet. And third, his own discovery that the ego is not the whole of the psyche, in some ways not even the center of psychic life. Now, of course, you could say Copernicus wasn't the first to mention the place of the earth not being so central. Darwin wasn't the first to mention that human beings aren't the center of life and so on. But Freud's talking about the kind of mainstream of conquest consciousness in, in the West, what we refer to as the, the West, which is just the dominant culture. And Freud didn't really discover the unconscious or the vastness of the psyche, as the story of Vimalakirti itself illustrates. 
Most spiritual traditions have their ways of getting at what we refer to as the unconscious. Freud just put it in a way that we could say the post-Cartesian mind could begin to grapple with it. Freud's sense of the unconscious vastly expanded the landscape of the soul. Our soul is not just what we're consciously aware of, the I think, therefore I am of Descartes. Freud's work gives us the image of an iceberg, famously. The conscious ego emerges as the very tip of something much, much bigger. The massive body of the iceberg floats under the surface. We don't sense it. We don't see it visually, for instance. But it's the most of us, we could say. Jung's discoveries further expanded our psyche because Jung carried us from a vision of the merely personal unconscious to a vision of the collective unconscious. Where Freud offered us the sense that the ego was the tip of a vast iceberg. Now Jung puts us in touch with the ocean in which our personal psyches float. That's really vast, right? From iceberg, which is already, wow, we went from tip of the iceberg to iceberg to ocean. And the work of Groff and Maslow and other Western psychologists in the transpersonal stream, we could call it, They expanded the cartography of the soul further still, putting us in touch with the earth that hosts those oceans and even in touch with the cosmos itself. That's extraordinary. It's a vast sense of the soul, far exceeding the personal experience of the ego or even the personal unconscious, which is already much bigger than the ego. And when we call this transpersonal, it could get confusing. what, What we mean is that the personal itself is transpersonal. If we have a Freudian view of ourselves and someone asks us to point at ourselves, we could point at our body or our skull and that response could make sense. But once we discover the insights of Jung, Maslow, Groff, and other psychologists, including the Buddhist psychologists, if someone asks us to point at ourselves, we might just laugh. We've made this suggestion before. We realize that what we are is not localizable important aspects, really essential aspects to what we are, they spread out into spaces we might not have at first imagined. And this thing that we refer to as a self or the I becomes a more confusing concept. Each of the expansions of the sense of self, even Freud's, came with skepticism. People were skeptical of Freud, and the skepticisms just kept increasing as the expansions blew open our preconceived notions. The Pauli Jung conjecture, that alone, you know, we usually refer to that as the experience of synchronicity, but as an idea and our experience of it, it, it ruptures the boundaries of space, time, and psyche in ways our current paradigm finds unacceptable. When you experience a synchronicity, it just immediately makes the boundary between self and other personal and transpersonal fuzzy. 
By the time we get to Groff's suggestions, we've left the bounds of reality as we find it in the dominant paradigm. I mean, even Jung, again, it's already a, a huge challenge. Pauli, Pauli was a physicist and was aware of this. He wanted to evolve our paradigm. And we're talking about the cultural paradigm. Because even in hard science, the findings support these more revolutionary suggestions. But scientists can get pretty uncomfortable with it because, culturally speaking, they remain captured by bad philosophy. So the scientists might have evidence that is anomalous from the standpoint of the cultural paradigm, from the standpoint of the, the philosophy of life that really guides their vision of what they are and what a human being is and what the world is. And because of that capture, because they're possessed by bad philosophy, they can't really accept the evidence as evidence. They write it off as noise. It gets pushed into the unconscious possibilities that could explain the anomalous data get pushed into the unconscious. And we have a limited array of options then. The spiritual traditions already existed outside of these boundaries. And Western psychology, Western science in general, just seems to be playing a game of catch-up. That's a dangerous game because the things that we want to repress or suppress, it comes with a cost when we won't acknowledge them. The vast landscape of the soul explored by the psychonauts of the Indo-Tibetan Tantra, for instance, and the various streams of shamanic and other indigenous spiritualities, it, it boggles the mind to consider that cartography of the soul and what it suggests about what we are and what the world is. Failure to take into account this expanded landscape of the psyche only limits our creativity and not challenging, directly challenging, an implicitly narrow cartography of the soul, not only does it disservice to ourselves and others, but it leads us to continue damaging the world. We do it on the basis of ignorance of what we are. That's why we damage the world. That's why we suffer and perpetuate suffering for ourselves and others. Love wisdom has to do with waking up to what we are, arriving in this vaster landscape, leaving the bounded habitual mind, entering unknown and unconscious territory and making it conscious, making it home, realizing we are at home there and experiencing an expansion of our being and our vision. We can't enjoy liberation while unconsciously driven about by unconscious dynamics, especially incoherent ones. And even our creativity finds fuller freedom in an expansive cosmic experience and vision. This all to say again, the unconscious plays an unavoidable role in our lives as human beings, as artists, as parents, as concerned citizens, and so on in all our roles. Just the place that the unconscious plays, the role that it uh, plays, the place that it holds in politics, it's extraordinary. 
It would change our thinking about politics if we could just more deeply recognize unconscious dynamics, that they are real and that they are shaping what happens in the political theater that we watch and often scoff at. When we fail to deal with the unconscious, we create suffering for ourselves and others. So we're just trying to get at this, just lay out the importance of this and how it could be hidden to us. And our first reaction to any discussion of unconscious dynamics in us could be to avoid it. Hide, dismiss, can't be that way. There are some really loaded political reasons for this, which we may be able to get to. Nietzsche talked about some of this. Now, Jung put it very well, though, a line that is very important. I often mentioned to my students in the university, I've mentioned it to clients, we've probably said it in other contemplations. He said, the psychological rule says that when an inner situation is not made conscious, it happens outside us as fate. And I see this with my clients. We can all see it with friends. We can see it in the political and the economic realm. This rule applies in all sorts of life situations. And we may find that what appears like an accident over which we had no control, if we could reflect deeply enough, perhaps with the help of a guide, with at least one other person, right? Anywhere, any two of you gather. So there am I. When someone else comes with a good intention and good presence, then something divine is also there helping us to see. And we need, of course, to practice arts of awareness that allow us to sense things more clearly. And when we look at our life at the accident, supposed accident, the supposed the stroke of fate, with those things in place, with arts of awareness, with a real practice, a commitment, some support, then we might find troubling synchronicities. We might find an unsettling sense that the supposed accident or stroke of fate was no mere accident but had to do with unconscious dynamics, playing themselves out because they weren't faced. We didn't turn toward them in the unconscious and uncover them. We didn't find Sophia in the shadows, so the shadows came to us. Sophia came leaping out of them, sometimes painfully. We may insist that some careless driver just ran a red light and hit us. There was nothing we could do. It was an act of fate. Jung says, no, you might need to look more carefully. Sure, there are accidents or things that we really can't obsess over. That's it. Something happened. Move on. And at the same time, there are other important situations just like that. Hey, the guy ran a red light. What could I say? Well, the unconscious might have been at work. And all we're doing here is just expanding a a basic insight In the most general sense, the state of the world reflects the state of our souls. When we're incoherent, when we've got conflict in us, there's going to be conflict in the world. If we look at the state of the world right now, we're looking at the state of our own soul. It's sometimes easier to see the state of our soul by looking at the state of the world. Now, while Jung would, I think, agree with this general feeling for his point, he also intended a more focused kind of meaning that 
also in its own way applies broadly to the dominant culture. So if you look up that passage, you might enjoy reading the whole of it. And we'll consider it a little bit more fully, and it, it might prove helpful if we could imagine placing the insights there in a mandala. Put Jung's insights into a mandala along with the insights from philosophers like Wendell Berry and Paul Shepard and John Dewey, Arthur Bentley, the Dalai Lama, Dogen, Jesus, the peacemaker, a wide variety of indigenous philosophers, many other people, each in turn themselves representative of wider ecologies of mind. Now, to find this passage from Jung, you can look in his collected works if you have access to it. It's volume 9, part 2, starting around paragraph 124, or pardon me, 126. You can look in volume 11, starting around paragraph 519. You can also take a look in his Memories, Dreams, Reflections. Jung speaks of the irreconcilable nature of the opposites in Christian psychology. That's kind of dominant culture psychology in, its, in an important sense. It's not that we're strictly, the dominant culture strictly Christian, but very strongly influenced by the psychology of the monotheistic tradition. So our dualistic thinking sets itself up as permanently dualistic. That's what we're kind of getting at, you see? Because one side of the dualism gets moral approval and the other side gets moral condemnation. Can we sense how that might work? Here we are with cotton dualistic thoughts. If dualistic thoughts create suffering and all sorts of negative effects in the world, like economic inequality, ecological degradation, racism, patriarchy, and so on, we might heal those things if we could heal the dualistic thoughts. Yeah, is that... We could begin to make sense of that. Wait a second. So all this dualistic thinking, maybe it's creating problems. It's creating these problems. So if we could heal the thinking, we could heal the problems. But this is where Jung is getting the big point. If the dualism presents itself in moral terms, uh uh-oh, because now we have a problem. One side of the duality presents itself as morally correct. And so then the duality reinforces itself. And we have to wonder, well, how could we possibly move forward without becoming unethical? Stay with this here. If we were to think of something more uh, separate, let's say, think of yin and yang in Taoism. Okay, yin and yang, that's that circle with the white and the black. Yin and yang, we've heard about that. And we have these two characteristics. And they're just two sides of the whole. And we can think of them without, we can think of one without condemning the other. Yin has its place. Without yin, we can't have yang. Yang can't function without yin. No problem. So yang has certain characteristics, yin has certain characteristics, and we deem them both. We don't want to say that, oh no, yang is the morally superior. No, it can't function without yin. We need both. But that doesn't seem to be the way we relate to the dualities in our world. So Jung saw humanity as split in two, really split. And he saw a deep need to heal 
that divide. Take, for instance, here on Turtle Island. We see this split so clearly in the political circus, in which red and blue, Republican and Democrat, so-called, they don't relate to each other as complementary viewpoints in a whole, but as enemies. And not just enemies, but moral enemies. The language of the red side has it that if the blue team wins, it means the death of America, the death of freedom, the death of Christmas, the death of motherhood and families and baseball and apple pie, and Satan himself will soon take over because the blue team is evil. And they'll allow evil to prevail so we can't let them win. Morality is at stake. Now, as for the blue side, they do no better. For the blue side views the red team as backward, aggressive, racist, and so on. So the blue side sees the red side as unethical as the red side sees the blue side. Now, we might say, hold on a second, are are we questioning the label of racism here? Isn't the red team racist? No, that just shows the tension in the soul and how it plays out. Something inside us seeks the moral outrage in the behavior of the other side of the divide. Or even if you say, well, I'm not looking for it, I just see it. Okay, fine. That's how the opposites are operating. The opposites take on a moral character that solidifies the apparent space between them. And Jung wants us to see how the moral separation of opposites makes perfect sense. We create and maintain these irreconcilable opposites in part by giving them compelling rationalizations. One group thinks the red team cannot win because they're white supremacists. The other group thinks the blue team cannot win because they're godless socialists. We see the unethical behavior of the other side, and this reinforces the duality. Now, we're making an important point because it's very, people can get facile here and want to leap to some kind of kumbaya thing, and, you know, we're not, don't other, and we have to be more careful than we sometimes are when we talk about these things because there's an unconscious dynamic. We're not going to wish it away. We're not going to think it away. We have to first recognize in a deep sense that A, we're not going to give up ethics and B, something unconscious is going on and our judgments about duality are then unconscious and they seem natural and self-evident in part because we get captured by shadows and archetypes. And our neurotic complex seems to reveal reality rather than delusion. Right? Even So even as we come in and we try to make gestures of, oh, well, see, we'll make it all better because you, we could be thinking, yes, this doesn't make sense. You see, the two sides are morally opposed, and that's nonsense. We have to be able to get along, and so we'll let go of it. Well, that's not going to happen. Because if we could clearly see the places where delusion has us. So the one pointing at the thing. So if I'm standing there saying, well, look, this won't work, but if I could clearly see where the delusion has me too, then I'd be enlightened. I'd never suffer. I'd never do ignorant and unskillful things. 
So if we can look at our own life and say, well, I do, uh, I do ignorant things, I do suffer, I am not enlightened, then even when we try to point out, oh, see what's happening in the political circus, I'm beyond all that, you see, well, we're somehow probably still caught in it. And very often, just even this inability to accept that we might get angry, you know, that we all somehow have to pretend to have a lot of positivity, and that, no, the, oh, the other people, they don't make me angry, I accept them as human beings. Well, does that mean that you've pushed something into your unconscious? Maybe you really are angry with them, but you won't let yourself admit it. Maybe you are morally outraged, and you don't know what to do about it. And that's what Jung is saying. It's the time when we feel undivided. Because that's what's happening. You know, the red team doesn't, they feel undivided. We are right, you are wrong. And the person looking at the situation even and trying to rise above it says, well, I feel very undivided. I'm not, I don't, I'm not, have no anger. I don't hate those people. Oh, see, I, I wouldn't even say those people. They'll say, I never other anyone. Well, is that true? Or is it that you feel undivided? Why would Jung say that? Why would Jung say ignorance makes us feel undivided? Because our divided soul dooms us because we live unconscious of the division in ourselves. And we're not talking about something theoretical. This is real life, daily life. We can live in such a way that we pretend we have no incoherence in us, no conflict in the soul. We might admit conflict and challenge in some area. But this area, no, this one I'm good, I have it. You know, I, I don't, I'm not angered by whoever it is. I'm not bothered by this or that. Look at me, I have a, such a good attitude. So we leave out the real core of the conflict. We try to locate it where we feel safe dealing with it. Well, can you just help me over here? My dating life, that's my problem. No, but over everywhere else I'm enlightened. Really? This certainly makes sense. So we're remaining unconscious of the deeper division in us, of its true nature and full extent, and we live as if undivided, at least in this or that place. Or generally, I'm fine, I'm totally coherent, it's just this one little thing. And so this undivided state of ignorance and neurosis masks a deeper division that we really do need to address and heal. So we'd have to become conscious of a division that's already there and allow a spontaneous healing response. It would be to say, I have a problem. I'm hurting. Yes, I am angry, lost, confused, desperate. I really am. And yet I'm supposed to be feeling positive and, oh, look, I just go with it and life just has a lot of lessons for me right now. And we try to put it in this very positive language. And meanwhile, we're, we're not healing self and world and mutuality. Our healing can't happen while the shadow remains repressed and largely unconscious. Shadow means repressed, in fact. means the parts of ourselves that we have rejected, denied, or don't even know. So we repress our anger. We really think of ourselves as, not, I'm not at all an angry person, and yet anger might seethe under the surface because it's unconscious. That's the point. It's when we're saying, I'm not that, that we might 
have noticed that we've got a problem. In fact, we might be very sensitive to angry people. I don't like angry. I'm not angry, you see. So then the angry people, you're more aware of them. Why? Well, because I'm just very sensitive. Is that it? Or is it that there's also anger in your unconscious? In popular culture, the movie Anger Management, this surprises people when I tell them, because I've told a lot of friends this and even clients, I say, you know, that, that movie Anger Management is really worth watching. And people say, oh, that's just a stupid buddy film. You know, it's just this goofy thing. And there are two characters, main characters, Jack Nicholson and Adam Sandler. If you watch the movie, looking at Jack Nicholson's character as a Zen master, just pretending that he's this goofy Zen master, he really is very awakened. And he's just, anytime he is ignorant, it's just all playing ignorant. And if you imagine Adam Sandler is yourself, that the movie is really about your life and that you really are like Adam Sandler's character and don't believe that you're very angry, then it can be pretty entertaining. Or at least just imagine Adam Sandler as your friend who you think is uh, has anger issues and doesn't know it. Just doesn't. They seem easygoing. And maybe it's even a friend you don't suspect is. If you can't look at yourself, you say, yeah, I've got this friend. He or she, they always happy-go-lucky. Always easygoing. Never see them get angry. Um, and so we may find that this, like this character in the movie, we or our friends, we, we might begin to wonder, do they have anger in their unconscious, in their shadow? It's worth watching it with that in mind. It's much more entertaining if we think of him, uh, think of the characters this way. And the shadow can be anything we reject. So that means, for instance, maybe things we hated in our parents or other figures of prominence or authority, you know, or some kind of energetic or important figures in our past, in some form can end up in our unconscious, in the shadow. And that leaves our functioning degraded because, you know, if we had a parent who seemed too soft or sensitive, you know, then empathy and compassion and sensitivity might go into our shadow because I'm tough, you know. I tell you, my dad, he was a wuss or you know, some kind of thing. He was always too sensitive and uh, all kinds of, uh, but I'm tough. And then we have left all our sensitivity in the shadow in some cases. It's not a guarantee. It's just one of the ways that we can begin to ask. If it's unconscious, we have to start kind of feeling around a little to sense what could be there. If we had a parent who seemed angry or maybe a teacher or something, seemed to be prone to anger and that kind of scared us or whatever it might be, maybe we saw that it was just really ineffective for them. And we thought, you know, their life wouldn't be such a disaster if they weren't so angry all the time. But then our capacity for fierceness, coupled with mirror-like wisdom, that goes into the shadow, along with a great deal of repressed anger, actual, the encumbered side of that. You see, what, what we're saying is that anger is an encumbered expression of mirror-like wisdom and fierceness. And so both the encumbered expression of it, because we're not yet enlightened, and also the possibility for its unencumbered expression, that all goes into the shadow. Because it's not as if we can repress our anger and imagine that, well, consciously I have mirror-like wisdom and fierceness. I'm fine with that. No. If we repress anger, we're repressing not only this difficult emotion and something about ourselves, that yes, there's something in you that's angry right now, but we're repressing the possibility for the expression of wisdom, love, and beauty. 
That's the way it is for the negative things. They can have an unencumbered aspect. To go into our shadow is not to say, well, now I'm going to be angry. It's to say, I need to look. And I need to liberate the energies there into their positive aspect, not leave them as they are, necessarily. I mean, whatever's there needs development. That's the point. Whether it seems positive or negative at first glance, it still needs development. Shame could end up in the shadow, which means that we could find it really hard to face criticism. Just, you know, maybe our parents shamed us and we just, one experience of shame can just lock, I will never experience that again, says some part of the psyche, and into the shadow it goes. We may have a hard time admitting wrongdoing or admitting errors. I mean, that's what we would notice. We wouldn't notice that shame is in there. We would notice that, yeah, you know, I have a real hard time admitting that I made a mistake. Facing crit- I get really uncomfortable if somebody starts to criticize me, but we say we're being fierce. I'm sticking up for myself. You know? We might engage in a lot of catastrophizing when we do something wrong, like, whoa, big... And it's simply because we won't allow ourselves to really feel ashamed. That could be it. Sometimes it's the opposite. We're just really prone to shame. That's why there's the catastrophizing happens. We have to do a little forensic work of the soul, you know. Fear could end up in the shadow so that we're not able to admit our anxiety. Can't really face how frightened we might feel about the state of the world, the state of our relationships, or maybe one relationship in particular. We're just, we're just afraid. It's not going well, but we, we can't face the fear because that's in the shadow. Oh, everything's good. We're, everything's fine. I'm good. Are you good? I'm good. You know, or again, we try the happy-go-lucky. Oh, yeah, well, you know, everything's a little bit, who knows where it's going. I'm just going along. Meanwhile, the world needs us to pay attention. You know, the river's saying, yeah, you're going along just fine. I keep getting more polluted every day. You want to do anything about that? Our ill intentions may end up in the shadow. And we find ourselves constantly insisting on our good intentions and really sensitive to people who we think have, have a bad intention, you know, a hidden agenda. You start noticing a lot of hidden agendas around you, you might wonder, wait, maybe the biggest hidden agenda is mine. Low self-esteem could end up in the shadow. That would lead us to feel overconfident on a conscious level. Might be arrogant. There also might be a lot of self-sabotage. A lot of interpersonal issues, like needing to be found attractive or sexually desired. You know, so we're there's no conscious awareness that we have low self-esteem. But what we are is very um, overt in our sexuality, might be promiscuous, we might be engaged in a lot of self-sabotage in our, at work, whatever it might be. Simply, And it seems that we're confident. It seems like, oh yeah, we, we, we say we're going to deliver the proposal or whatever, and then all kinds of things go wrong. And meanwhile, it's just because we really don't believe we can do it. And, and it looks like fate. Well, everything would have been fine, but, you know, Jones got sick, and that blew the whole thing apart. And yes, it seemed like an act of fate. Now, both positive and negative qualities, we said, they can end up in the shadow. So it could be something nice-seeming. It could be something not. But in any case, it can be things, these things tend to need development. And acceptance of ourselves in our fullness, including what's in the shadow, that's the only way we're going to heal. Now, Jung was a great healer of souls. 
And his own experience doing that work taught him that we cannot change anything unless we accept it. We have to accept reality first. And full acceptance means full awareness. The medicine of awareness, the most powerful medicine, it heals all our psychic ills. That medicine, awareness. Awareness at the end, which brings insight. The insights themselves are like little doses of medicine. But acceptance presents many challenges. We have a tendency to condemn. You have to look at that. That suffering, in a certain sense, means being trapped in a cycle of praise and blame. Like as if there's this wheel that you're on called praise and blame. And suffering means I'm on that wheel. Condemnation can never heal or liberate us, not really. The attitude of condemnation oppresses. Jung wants us to see that. And we see it politically all the time. It plays out on a personal and interpersonal level too. When we blame, we think we see clearly. And that goes together again with that moral outrage, right? We're blaming there, that person did something wrong. That president, what a dumb thing he did. So we're ready to condemn, we're ready to blame. We think we see clearly. And we think we located the source of the problem. But the tragic irony there lies in the fact that the real problem goes together with the whole cycle of praise and blame. So the same gesture where we praise the other person, well, that person did the good thing. That's the same cycle. So it's kind of comical. When we blame or when we praise, that very activity keeps us locked in a way of relating that fundamentally involves bondage and ignorance. Blame perpetuates suffering, even as we try to use it to fix our suffering. The same with praise. We try to use that, try to pat ourselves on the back to fix the suffering, but it, we're caught in the same cycle that creates the problem. Now, this doesn't mean we don't acknowledge when people do good things. It doesn't mean we turn ourselves into a doormat or that we stand by and let people commit evil. You know, wait, what, I can't blame them? Oh, it's okay to acknowledge wrongdoing and to say, this has got to stop. But it's got to stop because it's got to stop. The cycle of praise and blame itself presences a kind of evil in the world. And so praise and blame won't alleviate our suffering. Instead, we could say the very fact of our suffering offers us the way out. A spiritual life teaches us how our suffering unites us, connects us with all beings. We see other sentient beings as just like ourselves. And when we do that, we can stop condemning them. We can recognize that other people just want to be happy. They want to be happy, and just like us, they often do a bad job of it. We are so much like our supposed enemies that we could all just relax a little bit if we 
would stop condemning each other. But we cannot stop condemning others if we have not genuinely accepted ourselves. And there we find the keystone, the central issue, the heart of the matter. Jung wisely called self-acceptance the acid test of our whole philosophy of life. What a suggestion. Isn't that remarkable? Self-acceptance is the acid test of our whole philosophy of life. Not the acid test of our concepts. That's too easy. This is one of the major issues of the self-help catastrophe and Western psychology, the way we're relating to each other and trying to feel better. We want to act like we're accepting ourselves, but we don't, we don't know what we are. We can't accept what you don't know. We can't say, oh, I really, accept, I really accept my body, I really accept who I am. And this is a lot of words. It's a nice aspiration. I really believe I'm special. If we could all just accept how special we are, how wonderful we are, it sounds great. But we would have to know what we are. So we're talking about the acid test of our level of realization, not for the words or sentences we could say. We're talking about the acid test for how well we live right now, how much we are living actively a skillful, graceful, realistic philosophy of life. So Jung pointed out that we could do lots of nice things in the world. We could feed a starving child or forgive an insult. We could uh, give a homeless person a blanket. And Jesus specifically spoke of how we treat the least of these. That's what he spoke about. How you treat the least of these. It's also how you treat me. And that already presents so many problems in our divided society and the dominant culture. The United States has a strong Christian sentiment, but an almost impossible task in treating the least of these with wisdom, love, and beauty as we currently live our lives. It seems like we can't do it. Compassion seems lacking in so many cases. Just basic compassion. And you we're saying why does it comes from the fact that we moralize these opposites. You know, it's morally good for the wealthy person not to pay any taxes, and it's morally bad for a person who's lost their job and has a health care problem and all this to have their medical expenses covered and to have unemployment benefits. It's morally good for someone to make billions and billions and billions. And the person who doesn't, they are morally bad, clearly. They must be lazy. There's a problem with them. So this whole cycle of praise and blame, it's all just part of it. So there, though, we have this idea that we could we could do nice things and we could try to live up to the Christian or Buddhist or whatever ideal, the Muslim ideal, of treating the least of these with dignity with care. But Jung asks us a disturbing question. He says, well, what if we find ourselves in a situation in which the least of these is ourself? 
if we look honestly, honestly and deeply, and we ask, not in principle, not as an idea, but really, how much do we accept ourselves? Which means we have to know ourselves. If we look honestly and deeply and ask, really, how much do we accept ourselves? We might find that the starving child we most urgently need to feed and the enemy we most urgently need to forgive is ourself. And if we continue to look with care, real care and real rigor, we could say, we may find that a key reason why we have starving children and homeless people and enemies in the first place has to do with our lack of self-acceptance. And we have to keep resisting the temptation to get facile about this. Well, if I could just accept myself. It's just this self-help catastrophe talk. We're talking about a Socratic ideal, a Buddhist ideal, a Confucian ideal, a spiritual ideal, not something we can put on a bumper sticker. Even intellectually, it could seem counterintuitive that the limit of our self-acceptance marks the limit in our acceptance of life itself. And it will always create a barrier between ourselves and others. The limit of our self-compassion marks a limit for our compassion for others. And we can't get around that problem. It relates to wholeness. And wholeness in relation to the unconscious. In his Memories, Dreams, Reflections, Jung writes about the shadow and the great need for psychological sophistication at this unprecedented historical moment, which, which has only gotten worse since Jung published that book. You know, we can think of a moment as thick. It's not one second. But, you know, a hundred or even a thousand years can be a moment in the Earth's life. Even in the span of the human lineage, a hundred years is a blink. So we're still in a moment. It's been deepening for maybe 10,000 years in the dominant culture. And it has ruptured the moment of other cultures. And Jung points out there in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, worth at least skimming that book if you can. He points out that generally speaking, people remain so unconscious, so asleep in their lives and driven by confused and unconscious patterns that we fail to see our own fullest potentials, fullest potentials. And that in turn means that every time we make a decision, we fail to sense all the possibilities available. In some sense, we, we could say we make decisions all the time, ceaselessly. Often they seem to have little consequence, but even the small decisions add up. And they either perpetuate ignorance and the ignorance of our culture, or they liberate us. They go in that direction. Every little decision, what to eat, how to walk, each foot, each breath, it's all happening. Because life is subtle, and complex and loaded with uncertainties. We end up looking outside ourselves for rules, regulations, opinions, guidance of any kind, anything 
self-help books, roadmaps, blueprints, self-hacks, mind hacks, anything to help us deal with the feeling of groundlessness and uncertainty, the impermanence of things and our inability to control and manipulate the world. Looking outside for help. And we keep doing that. We're not comfortable with the groundlessness. We don't know how to work with it. We're not comfortable with the uncertainty. We don't know really what we are. And we're in this search for the answer because our culture lacks rootedness in wisdom, love, and beauty. Our education doesn't teach us how to get in touch with our own soul. That is, to really know ourselves. And how to get in touch with the soul of the world, to know it. How to be in touch with the sacred powers and inconceivable causes that make all things happen. Our culture doesn't teach us what our mind is and how to use it. We don't learn about the nature of mind and the mind of nature. So we mainly get in education a style of consciousness and a collection of beliefs that perpetuate the pattern of insanity that already has us and the world in its grips. We don't learn what a truly ethical life would look like. Truly ethical. Truly vitalizing. What a truly healthy mind and world are like. We don't learn about that. We don't receive an education on how to live an ethical and vitalizing life that rejuvenates the world and practices the whole of life onward. To come from and move toward wholeness. We don't get that in our education. We get a variety of abstract notions, many of them conflicting, few of them we can live up to because we weren't given the tools to live up to them. We look around and we see real evils in the world. We see real harms. Yet our education gives us no good way to understand evil itself. No reliable way to live a truly good life that doesn't create suffering for others. To understand evil and to understand how to live a good life means nothing less than self-knowledge. That's the old imperative of love wisdom. Really the world over. Know thyself. That's, but it's made, was made famous by the Oracle of Delphi and Socrates as an icon of know thyself. So that's where we come back to it. We can't wish self-acceptance into being. We can't try to accept ourselves. We have to know reality. We have to know what we are. We have to arrive at knowledge of our own wholeness and the wholeness of life, which means the holiness of life, the sacredness of our own soul and the ecologies that sustain us. The relation between self-acceptance, self-knowledge, and the shadow, in particular in the unconscious in general, is absolutely crucial. Shadow is all the stuff we don't know about ourselves on a personal level in that relative sense. It's everything we don't know about ourselves on a personal level. It means good and bad, as we said before. It means things that exist as capacities and potentials, but we have not cultivated them. 
So true compassion remains in the shadow for a lot of people in the culture. They may experience a lot of empathy. People can experience a lot of empathy, but compassion might remain in the shadow because it requires practice and more self-knowledge. Not only self-knowledge, but knowledge of reality. Those two have to go together. There's no such thing as I know myself, but I don't know reality. That's just another division and another delusion, a self-deception. I'm going to accept myself, but I don't know the world. I don't know what reality is. Do we have real wisdom or not? Sometimes we try to make self-acceptance overly personal in that sense. It's not really a personal thing. It's bigger than that. These things all get interwoven, because even compassion isn't exactly something in the personal unconscious. It's deeper and bigger. That's important to recognize. Because when we're talking about things like magic and compassion being partially, at least, in the shadow, they're bigger because these, there are things about us that are unknown but not really personal in that narrow egoic sense. The larger unconscious dimensions of ourselves are in some ways impersonal. And in some ways we would say they're neither personal nor impersonal. So we have to look at both. People Sometimes people talk about shadow work, not necessarily looking at all the other important things that are also in the unconscious, some of which we want to recruit to do the shadow work. And shadow in particular means much more the personal material. So again, outwardly, very happy, caring. We might think of ourselves that way. We might say, oh, I love everyone. I don't feel hatred toward anyone. I'm basically happy. And meanwhile, the shadow contains hatred, despair, real unhappiness. If we take the wisdom traditions at their word, they're telling us that we're suffering because of ignorance. So if we're not enlightened, that means we have to look for where the suffering is. If we're not willing to acknowledge it, that already can indicate a problem. We have to recognize we're not lying, strictly speaking, when we say we don't feel hatred and that we generally feel happy. The hatred and the despair or the unhappiness, the suffering, it gets repressed and we can remain largely unconscious of them. Or we're okay in some areas saying, well, I'm unhappy about this or I get angry when I hear about this, but not these other things. Here, no, I'm fine. And and that repression (laughs) uh, leaves something kind of festering. It has real effects We can't ignore it and think that everything's going to be just fine, that we're going to navigate the world with optimal skill and grace and poise and ethics. We have to begin to accept these repressed aspects of ourselves. And that means accepting the unconscious as a basic principle, just to say, okay, there, there are unconscious dynamics that operate in my life. When I think I'm in control, something else is living itself through me. And I cannot have self-acceptance if I lack self-knowledge. We have to be able to say that to ourselves. Self-acceptance means not only accepting the things that we know about ourselves, but finding out about ourselves and our world and remaining compassionate toward what we discover and doing the work to liberate 
unencumbered energies that we discover. We remain poised, you know, and warm-hearted, open toward what we discover. But compassion demands fierceness too. Sometimes it will happen in order to liberate those energies. So to emphasize it again, self-acceptance doesn't mean we discover that we get angry about certain things and we say, yes, and I'm angry and I accept it. But that we look and find out. We really look at the anger. Look at it so completely and so intimately that it could become unencumbered and that its energy could become a liberation for us. Unencumbered anger might manifest as compassionate fierceness, but then it would have a mirror-like wisdom to it and it wouldn't have the energy of aggression. Anger, then, we're saying, often indicates that something needs to be seen clearly. It is an encumbered mirror-like wisdom, clear seeing. It's just reflecting things as they are. And if we merely, first of all, if we have repressed it, we don't get to see the thing clearly. We don't even know that there's something that really needs clarity, that needs to be seen clearly, and might need even some fierceness. Then if we turn toward the anger, we say, wait, I've been repressing it. There's anger there. Okay, great. If we just stay angry, we don't still liberate that mirror-like wisdom. We have to go the further step. And we have to see Maybe there doesn't need to be any fierceness here. Nope, just need to see see this really clearly. And in any case, we don't need that heat and aggression, that edge of anger. In general, what we're saying is self-knowledge is key. Knowledge in general, wisdom is general. That's I see Jung sort of was emphasizing self-knowledge, but we want to emphasize wisdom. We want to say, no, wisdom which means the nature of reality, the nature of mind and the mind of nature. Reality, insight, wisdom, transformative insight, that's the key to shadow work. And that's why we need a meditative mind and a practice of compassion, a whole spiritual ecology, really. We need a whole matrix of practicing our life. We can't just think, I'm going to do shadow work. Well, upon what basis? What's your philosophy of life? What's your vision of reality, the cosmos? Shadow work takes place in a cosmos. It doesn't take place in my personal experience. It's not a personal experience. It's not a personal thing. Otherwise, I've made another duality. So it has to take place in a whole matrix, a whole cosmos, a whole vision, a mandala. Here's the cosmos. Ah, now we can begin the shadow work. Oh, but wait. Do you have the ethics in place? Do you have good intention? Do you have a meditative practice to clear the mind? What mind are you going to use for shadow work? Does it have stability and clarity? Have you practiced compassion so that you have the courage and strength to receive the difficult revelations about yourself and the world? Can you be still when the ego wants to say, oh, there's nothing there, what... Or will you just go along with that? Yes, I'm fine, I'm clear. This vision of the cosmos is really important because we have to have a sense of our cosmic level potential. We have to begin to understand 
and then eventually understand the cosmic level goodness that we might accomplish, just how much wisdom, love, and beauty we might be able to bring into the world. And we must also know clearly what terrible things we might be capable of doing. We have to be honest with ourselves, get beyond all self-deception, because a lot of us are blessed with moral luck. That is to say, if circumstances had only been different, we would have done far more unethical things than we've done in our life. That we know every bad thing we've done has been a result of ignorance, and if that ignorance had just had a different set of contexts, we might have made some really bad decisions. And it's just there, we, we, we avoided the things that we condemn other people for just by the grace of the goddesses, the gods, Sophia, the divine, whatever. We just got really lucky. We haven't been that tested, some of us. That's called moral luck. It means it's not that you would never steal. It's that life never put you in a situation where it became a reasonable option in that context and where it would have taken tremendous skill and training and wisdom to have resisted or done something different. Or maybe it just would have taken wisdom to know that you really did need to do it, but you could have done it in some more skillful way, right? It's like the the Heinz dilemma. Is it right for Mr. Heinz to steal the drug that would save his wife's life whenever the drug maker won't sell it to him at a price he could actually afford? You might say, yeah, he could do that without aggression. It wasn't for him. He was doing it. He had to do it, but it, it did turn him into a thief in that moment, didn't it? I mean, look at these ethical difficulties. Jung thinks we really need to look at them. We really have to understand these difficult questions. We have to be really honest with ourselves and get beyond all self-deception. And Jung, in his experience, studying the dominant culture, having so many patients as he did, he found the people of the dominant culture profoundly ill-equipped to live without self-deception and delusion. He found the people in the dominant culture profoundly ill-equipped for knowing ourselves and realizing our greatest potential, as well as acknowledging our greatest potential failures, you could say. And again, he studied the psyche of the dominant culture with great care. Hundreds of patients and also students, many of whom had the best education available in the dominant culture, many of whom had accomplished a great deal in their lives. They were successful. So he had the same experience Socrates had. Socrates went around to the best and brightest of his culture, and when he questioned them, he found them caught in delusion and self-deception. And he found they did not know the true nature of reality or the true nature of their own mind. If we don't know what we are, how can we ever think that we can fulfill our potential and live skillfully and realistically? If we don't know what we are, we don't know our nature and capacity. It would be like getting into the cockpit of a spaceship with no idea at all about what it is, not even knowing that it can fly, let alone that it could fly across galaxies. Sacred powers and inconceivable causes flow 
through us. They flow right through us as our own body and mind, as our heart and soul. And these powers and patternings already direct all the decisions of our lives. When we do not know them and do not know how to live well with them, through them, as them, they direct our lives into incoherence and suffering. We actively misknow and misuse ourselves and our world. That seems to capture the fundamental point of the wisdom traditions and of Jung's psychology. And Jung particularly wanted us to see how we may think we pursue conscious purposes, but meanwhile, unconscious factors direct our lives. If we keep living under the yoke of our own unconscious and the unconscious of our culture, we create major problems for ourselves, for each other, and the whole community of life. That's the ecological catastrophe. It's in part human unconsciousness, human ignorance. I mean, that's what it is in total, you could say. It's just human ignorance. It's a spiritual problem. And yet we're not sitting here trying to find out about ourselves. We're trying to solve the problem. That's, again, groping around outside looking for blueprints, plans, strategies, innovations. The whole thing's a problem of human ignorance and the unconscious. When will we start to look into that? Habitually, we operate as if we can pursue conscious purposes. But our way of thought, speech, and action is both controlled by unconscious factors and out of attunement with nature, out of alignment with reality itself. All our conscious notions fail to capture the fullness of ourselves and the wholeness of reality. So this helps us understand the profound need for a spiritual orientation to life. That's what we're talking about, philosophical spiritual orientation. A spiritual orientation means a commitment to let go of all our beliefs, and to gain genuine intimacy with the nature of our own mind, heart, body, and world. Beliefs as propositions fit into our consciousness. We can talk about them. We can say, I accept myself. That's just a notion. That's not reality. The discovery of the unconscious, especially the expanded cartography of the soul we find in Jung, and further in transpersonal psychology that really comes out of Jung in a certain way. That expanded landscape of the soul invites us back to each other, back to the community of life, back to a sense of humility and awe, back to care and compassion and a commitment to know ourselves and our world, to really know, not just believe. It invites us to surrender to sacredness and to enter the heart of wonder, to enter the magic and mystery of our total interwovenness. 
the inconceivable wholeness of the cosmos. In our next contemplation, we'll look a little further into the shadow and talk about some further elements of it and maybe begin to get into some of the things that we can do to start working with it again in a holistic way. We'll need a few contemplations here to lay out some important nuances that some of the self-help literature and the broadening discussion about shadow can sometimes leave out. And for now, just even sitting with this vast cartography of the soul and what that means, how it might shift the way we view ourselves, how, how we could begin to notice our defensiveness around things that might be affecting our lives but which we cannot see. And next time we'll look at that in a scientific analogy as well, which I think can be really helpful. Now in the meantime, if you have questions, reflections, or stories about the unconscious, maybe even interesting stories about the ways the unconscious can derail our plans and destabilize our egos, anything at all relevant to shadow and unconscious and some of the things that we've talked about in this contemplation, send them in through wisdomloveandbeauty.org and we might consider some of them in a future contemplation. Until then, this is your friendly neighborhood soul doctor reminding you that your soul, conscious and unconscious, and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.